Is it just to raise the tuition on an economically precarious 19 or 20 year old just so we can provide hundreds of, of six-figure salaries for middle-aged PhD holding mm. diversocrats? Mm. Uh, I don't think that's just at all, and in fact, if anything, it's regressive. It harms the least privileged students the most because it burdens them with, uh, with paying for basically the career of people that are, are if anything, a, a functionary service and quite possibly a reflection of the political system right now. American higher education used to be, and to a large extent still is, the envy of the world. But how long can this go on, given the problems associated with skyrocketing tuition, allegations of political bias, and the increasing perception that a college degree is worth far less than before. Joining us today is AIER Senior Research Faculty and Director of Research, Phil Magnus, who's the author of Cracks in the Ivory Tower, a book detailing the incentive and structural issues associated with higher education, especially its most exclusive institutions. This background makes Phil a perfect guest to talk about the issues that we have today. So before we get into the real meat of the discussion, um, both of us went attended the same uh, graduate school. Um, you obviously for public policy, me for law at George Mason University, um, which in a way is in the category of American higher ed, but also slightly outside that bubble at the same time. So I was wondering if you can say uh, a few words of sort of, I know, I think the first people, thing people might think about when they think of Mason is you know, more right-leaning, yeah. um, but at the same time, very rigorous, um, doing well in the rankings. So I was wondering if you can maybe, maybe let's just talk a little bit about our specific graduate program and just what do you, what made Mason what it is compared to the rest of American higher education. Yeah, so Mason is a very interesting institution. Uh, by and large, it's like almost any other large publicly funded state university system. It's one of the largest schools consistently in the state of Virginia. And uh, in that respect, uh, it's like something you'd find almost anywhere else. Mm -hmm. uh, but it has some very distinctive departments in it, and these are what have created the reputation around it. Uh, uh, they have kind of cast Mason as a, a hub of free market thought, a hub of uh, more conservative or originalist uh, judicial philosophies. But these really come from uh, two to three departments, mm -hmm. uh, and that comes from the history of how they were set up. Um, that is the law school, which I know you know very uh, mm -hmm. well, uh, was created uh, several decades ago with an intentional strategy. Uh, they, they essentially played uh, legal scholar money ball. They looked mm -hmm. for people that were underplaced, uh, but nonetheless were engaged in productive uh, scholarly output and recruited them. Uh, to this law school uh, to basically form a, a nexus there that offered something slightly different than uh, your run-of-the-mill uh, program that you find at most universities. Econ department's a little bit different in the sense that it started as a, a, uh, a small department at a regional state university that was up and coming at the time, but nothing mm -hmm. uh, really uh, distinctive. GMU is a pretty young school, all things considering. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it started as a branch campus of the University of Virginia. Mm. Uh, and it really wasn't until the 1970s it even became something of a university itself. Uh, but what happened is uh, there were some very entrepreneurial members of the economics department that looked around and found, uh, you know, somewhat similarly, uh, distinguished scholars 
that were either underplaced uh, because of the biases of academia mm-hmm. or were not getting uh, the attention and merit that they deserved on their scholarship. Or in, in, in some cases, so the Center for Public Choice, they were looking to move. They were looking for a new home. And uh, early department chairs at GMU made that bid and brought in James Buchanan and uh, his team of scholars. And then uh, you know, a few years later, they went a, no- a Nobel Prize mm. uh, for it. So that, uh, that really put them on the map. Uh, but again, the, the the interesting, distinctive thing about GMU as well is uh, the scholarly heft of the university system uh, is very concentrated in these two or three departments. The economics mm-hmm. department and the law school vastly outpublish uh, almost mm-hmm. any other unit of the university. There's a, there's some spillover that I experienced in what was then the School of Public Policy when I went through it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so it was adjacent to that. But uh, you have a couple of really star faculty at key departments that are doing the heavy lifting, that are bringing in uh, a scholarship that is recognized nationwide. Hmm. And, of course, it's hearing, like, especially in the economics profession, we hear about all sorts of different schools, like the Chicago School, the Virginia School. And generally speaking, these are all just interesting, I don't know what the word is, but, like, you know, interesting schools of thought. And not necessarily a bad thing or a good thing. It's just, you know... They have a. Uh, they espouse a certain type of um, perspective on various matters, but at the same time, that's not necessarily what the perception is about Mason. It's not necessarily the Chicago School or the Virginia right, School. Right. It's like essentially demonized by a lot of academia. So I was wondering, you know, from sort of like a that sort of perspective, given that we're supposed to celebrate, you know, different schools of thought, why exactly is it? Exact opposite. No celebration, more demonization. Well, uh, I think this portends some very dangerous trends in academia that we've witnessed over the last few decades. Uh, academia, and especially elite academia, have become politically homogenous uh, monocultures, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, I take the approach that we're the experts, we know what's right, we know how society should run, uh, and everyone else is at fault for not listening to us. Mm. Uh, it's real similar to what we saw during the COVID uh, pandemic. Pandemic, uh, there was one single narrative of what the science should be, and anyone that disagreed with it, even if they were credentialed experts, even if they had evidence, was demonized and pushed onto the outside. Uh, GMU, because it has reputationally, at least in these two departments, in the law school and the econ department, uh, reputations for pursuing uh, scholarly avenues that are, uh, are, are less recognized elsewhere in the academy. Uh, or, you know, at best you have maybe one token faculty member that's supposed Mm -hmm. to uh, represent all of the political right, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that's conservative, libertarian, anything and everything in between, and then a department of 20 other Marxists or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's kind of how elite academia has started to view people that are outside of the ideological bubble that they inhabit. It's Maybe it's okay to have one or two tokens around Mm -hmm. represent that alternative viewpoint, but uh, there's something wrong with them. Let alone, and if you have an entire department that mm-hmm. is uh, uh, allowing that type of scholarship to, to flourish, it is perceived as uh, as an other, as, as something that's outside of the realm of uh, what elite academia is supposed to be. Mm. And just jumping into your book, which does touch on elite academia, but also academia in general. Mm-hmm. Um, the, there are some very interesting structural and incentive problems going on that you point out, and I guess going. Um, so one, one of the you know main problems is, and this is very personal to me because I went to one of these schools that has this price tag, just tuitions, you know, at a nice private school these days is roughly $80,000. Right. Um, I guess I, I was going to maybe try to tee that up with a 
whole eloquent question, but I guess I can only just ask you now, like, why? <laughs> like, how was it always like this? Why is it like this? Well, it's a complex answer. Uh, first, what I can start with is kind of swatting away some of the, uh, the myths that have been uh, pervasive on this. You know, we wrote Cracks in the Ivory Tower. We did not, explicitly did not try to take an ideological uh, stance on how to evaluate higher ed. Uh, in fact, we make the point several times in the book that uh, the observations we see, the problems that we encounter would be true whether academia were controlled by the far left, the far right, or anything in between. Mm -hmm. it, it's a problem of the incentive structure. Um, what is often presented as the reason for raising tuition, for exorbitant costs, for waste, all of the things that we see around us, because everyone recognizes it. You just step foot on campus and you know that there's waste everywhere. You know that uh, money is, uh, is being extracted out of students for things that really aren't all that useful for students. It's a mixture mm -hmm. of lifestyle amenities, so you get fancy dorms and rock climbing walls, mm -hmm. uh, but it's also you take a lot of junk classes that mm -hmm. you don't really need uh, for your degree, but they're mandated. They're, uh, they're something you have to actually sit through and pay for, mm -hmm. uh, and then you have to incur lots of debt to do it. So we ask the question, why do these problems exist? So the higher ed literature tends to focus on what we call, uh, uh, you know, like, like these boogeyman or, or poltergeist mm. style answers. Uh, they say, well, higher ed would be fine, except the poltergeist of neoliberalism is involved and <laughs> mm -hmm. in, in is running amok and tearing things apart. Or universities would be great, but uh, someone decided they should run like corporations. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're all corporation-y and everything. And it, it, they're, they're really like uh, facile type of answers. They don't really have so much substance behind them, but they're ubiquitous mm -hmm. in the way that we talk about higher ed. So what we try to do is peel back some of these standard answers that you see in the literature and ask the question, well, what's really going on here? And, and, and we find that uh, rather than poltergeists moving in and making the universities dysfunctional, uh, universities are actually much more systemically dysfunctional because mm -hmm. of their institutional design. Mm. Uh, if anything, they resemble government bureaucracy. So mm. uh, the same factors you encounter at the DMV when you try to get your <laughs> license uh, renewed are, are often very similar to the financial aid office or the registrar when mm. you're, you're trying to go through college. Uh, and so, so what are the reasons behind this? Well, it turns out academia is a multi-billion dollar entity with mm. lots of public funding. Mm. Lots of private funding goes in, into it through tuition as well. But there are almost no price signals Mm. Uh, it, it, even if you're paying tuition, yes, you have a price tag of $80,000 a year, but do you know how that's allocated in the university? Almost no one does. Mm. Uh, is there price competition between schools? Maybe a little bit on the margin, but it's often through secondary and third-party payers because you're mm. taking out loans. Uh, the faculty that are delivering classes, they don't really have much of a signal back to them either on whether their classes are successful or not. They have to rely on filling out forms where you rate on the score of one to five, whether this is a valuable class or not. Mm -hmm. uh, things that don't really have a, uh, a monetary mechanism, and yet there are massive allocations of budgeting. So how is budget allocated in the university system? Basically through rent-seeking, mm. through internal lobbying to capture pieces of the pie. Mm. Uh, and what that really comes down to for most faculty and for most administrators, their number one priority is not this lofty goal of educating society mm. or advancing knowledge or uh, everything that they put on their, their uh, glossy brochures. Mm. Their number one goal is to ensure that they themselves have a <laughs> lucrative, comfortable, well-paying job. Mm. And that goes a lot to um, 
people talk about administrative bloat <laughs> and you know the ball pit sounds expensive but then in the day like the ball pit i don't know how much ball pits cost but it definitely doesn't i don't think running a ball pit would would uh, justify running your tuition up up to like 70 to 80,000 yeah, dollars um over the course of just decades so what can you give me an example of what are sort of these like factions that you're talking about that are just running up the cost at the expense of the students? Yeah, well, well there, there's no single one, but it's just a proliferation of functionary offices that are aimed at lifestyle and student services and sometimes political causes across the university. And you can see this in the data. You go back to the 1970s, and administrators are relatively rare compared to the biggest units on campus are faculty and students. Mm -hmm. Uh, so if you start in the early 1970s, there are far more faculty than there are administrators. Mm. Uh, some point in the last decade or two, those flipped. Mm. The number of administrators started to exceed the number of faculty on campus. So there are more people running the university in its many functions mm. than there are actually teaching students, mm. uh, which is uh, you know kind of odd. Uh, if the purpose is to educate, you'd want to focus on the people that are actually delivering education in the classroom. Rather, what's going on, uh, you get a proliferation. So some I mentioned is like the amenities. It's the ball pit. It's the rock climbing wall. It's the lazy river that they build on campus. It's mm -hmm. lifestyle stuff to attract students to campus. Fancy dorms, fancy cafeterias, mm -hmm. uh, things like that. Uh, every time you expand that, you have to hire staff for it. But that's, you know, that's one small piece of the pie. Uh, student services offices that move outside of regular education but are offering uh, activities to do during the course of the semester. Or in some cases, and this has really uh, exploded in the last uh, five to ten years, expressly political offices. So almost mm -hmm. all campuses now have a, an office of sustainability that simply didn't exist in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Uh, and what does it do? Well, it looks for ways to put like solar panels on the dumpsters <laughs> and uh, looks for ways that uh, we can convert the cafeteria into recycled napkins or something. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it, it stages activist causes on campus. Uh, the other one that's exploded in the last few years are uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion officers. Mm -hmm. And we're just starting to get some data on this from individual universities. Uh, I think University of Michigan was the most notorious recent case that someone did a study on. And they found that the number of diversocrats, mm -hmm. uh, that basically this, this didn't even exist 10 or 15 years ago, these types of offices. Mm -hmm. uh, then, then you have one or two vice presidents for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then five years later, you have hundreds mm. uh, of people often making higher salaries than even the faculty themselves. And this has been a direct response to political pressure because we see uh, um, political trends in society. Race has burst onto the national scene as a, uh, a major issue that we're debating. Mm. And the incentive is for universities to address the national political climate by doing something internally, which means that they end up... Uh, throwing money at and hiring a lot of administrators. Uh, whether you think that's a good thing or not, uh, I mean, I won't even say. Mm -hmm. What I will say is that money has to come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that's either the taxpayers or the tuition-paying students in the practical sense. And I'd, I'd ask the question just as a matter of basic justice for the students. Students are entering college often on a, uh, a financially uh, weaker position in life. I mean, they're, they're just out of high school, probably have never had a job. If anything, what money they have comes from parents or, or a scholarship or someone investing, or they're taking out loans. Mm. Uh, is it just to raise the tuition 
on an economically precarious 19 or 20 year old just so we can provide hundreds of, of six-figure salaries for middle-aged PhD holding mm. diversocrats. Mm. Uh, I don't think that's just at all. And in fact, if anything, it's regressive. It harms the least privileged students the most because it burdens them with uh, with paying for basically the career of people that are, are if anything, a, a functionary service and quite possibly a reflection of the political system right now. Hmm. And on that point of funding, because I do think there's some interesting trends going on in higher ed, uh, particularly about the funding model itself. So you mentioned a lot of it is um, grants from the federal government. Um at my institution, and I'm sure many other institutions like it, uh, you would notice that there's a large amount of Chinese international students and other international students who are paying f- full price. Yeah. And then people like me, like you know, normal Americans, are paying like we're getting large um, scholarships to you know. I never, I never paid that seventy grand, yeah. obviously, thank God. But yeah. <laughs> um, but I do know a lot of like you know a lot of my international friends were paying the full price. Yeah. So I was wondering, do you think that's actually reminiscent of this, almost like a worrying trend of where this funding is is increasingly coming from. Yeah. Well, uh, this has been a conscious part of the university funding model. They realized that uh, so so most financial aid assistance that comes in the United States is either tied to you're an in-state resident of this public university or uh, you're a a resident of the United States and therefore qualify for federally subsidized loans. Uh, there, there, There are things that are about uh, university funding that make it so that most Americans don't ever pay the full sticker price. Mm. But because the U.S. university system has an international repute, it's, it's seen as uh, by far the strongest uh, educational system uh, in the world. Now, some of that's maybe changing. There are some competitors abroad. Uh, but all things considered, especially if you get into the higher ranks, the Ph.D. level, a U.S. Ph.D. is about the only game outside of maybe Oxford and Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... With that in mind, it also means that they can attract, as a funding model, students from abroad who don't qualify for all of these uh, internal exemptions and deductions and and, uh, in-state tuition, things like that, that can, in fact, uh, pay full sticker price. it kind of created a, a bit of a crisis during the COVID era because when we shut down the borders, mm-hmm. suddenly you don't have an intake of students from abroad uh, that are paying full sticker price, and you had entire universities that built their funding model or substantial parts around of it on the ability to attract students from abroad, mm. uh, knowing that they're going to be paying much more than uh, than in-state tuition or uh, whatever the benefit happens to be for, uh, uh, for U.S. residents. Mm. So I want to now switch to what exactly are these students paying for, right? Yeah. Curriculum. Yeah. Um, we hear constant allegations of political bias, yeah. and I'm sure you have some concrete data on that, right? But we've come to a point where, you know, the, I've, I've heard, I obviously wasn't alive for this, but I heard American higher ed, especially the elite private schools in the Northeast, used to be, you know, these bastions of learning, of free speech, of rigorous debate. Um, and now, you know, uh, Professor Akhil Amar at Yale can't give a talk, can't teach right. Constitution 101 without student activists barging in and like just talking about um, genocide and how the Constitution is a bad thing or whatever. Um, you talked about the the one token right wing professor out of the sea of, of many on the left. And that person's supposed to speak for the entire yeah. um, ideology, essentially. That was essentially how my, my undergrad was. So what like what do you make of this? 
do you think the ideological bias is real? And if, to what extent uh, do you think it is? Yeah. Uh, so the data is overwhelming that uh, universities mm-hmm. have shifted to the left. Uh, even as recent as 20 years ago, you always had a left of center plurality among the professoriate. Uh, but we're talking like 40 to 45 percent identified on the political left. And this had been stable as far back as we have data to the 1960s. Uh, so you're talking three or four decades of universities being to the left of center, but uh, but pretty stable in that sense. And the remainder is split between conservatives, libertarians, moderates, mm-hmm. uh, at least a fairly diverse array. Never quite the majority on the remainder, mm-hmm. um, any, any single faction at least, but uh, uh, you could get multiple perspectives. Uh, after the late 90s, early 2000s, something happens in the university system, and we're still trying to figure out exactly what, but we do know from the data, the Higher Ed Research Institute at UCLA does a, uh, a faculty survey every two to three years where they try to map the political leanings of the professoriate. And in that short period of the last 15 years or so, it's moved from... 40 to 45 percent on the left, the stable uh, center-left medium, to now we're in excess of 60 percent of the faculty university-wide are on the left. And you think about this, this also includes not terribly politicized disciplines. Uh, So like the accounting department, it probably doesn't matter too much what the professor's political leanings are, Mm -hmm. because they're just teaching you how to do accounting books. Mm -hmm. Um, The engineering department, the biology department, the hard sciences, the STEM fields tend not to be so politicized. But what this means is if all professors, the whole professoriate is uh, 60 to 65 percent on the left, you get into the more politically active disciplines and the humanities and social scientists, it's more like 80 to 90 percent on the Mm -hmm. political left. Mm. And you find that when you do the breakdowns in the English department, it's like 90 percent are not only on the left, but they're hard left activists. Mm. Uh, It's it's almost impossible at most universities to find anyone that's even outside of that echo chamber. And this is a very recent phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a a very sharp leftward shift. Now, you throw that on top of one of the more structural issues of the university system, and this doesn't depend on politics, what I'm about to say, uh, but the way we we structure our degrees, a typical four-year degree, uh, most of the time in that degree is split between two things. Mm-hmm. One is your major, and this is what you're, the skill you're actually trying to learn to focus your career on, and that's what we all think about. I decide I'm going to major in history, and then I'm going to spend most of my classes in the history department. Mm-hmm. Uh, do engineering, I'll spend most of the classes on the engineering curriculum. Uh, but the other large segment of your coursework are, are what we refer to as mandatory gen eds. Mm-hmm. And it varies a little bit university to university, but uh, the average typical college experience, about one-third of the classes that you end up paying for are mandatory gen eds. Mm -hmm. And this comes from centuries ago, the idea of being a well-rounded, well-educated college graduate. As you know, uh, you know something about the English language and literature, you know something about math, you know something about astronomy, uh, regardless of what you happen to be majoring in. Mm. Uh, So you, you have to do the core survey of all of the uh, the range of disciplines that are offered at the university system, uh, which is all fine and dandy, and it sounds like a, uh, a, a great uh, concept to create educated citizens. The problem, though, is a lot of the mandatory gen ed classes today are taught in such ways that uh, we think of them as the blow-off classes. Mm. I mean, go back to your undergrad experience. Did you take some class in art or music theory or poetry that you have no idea what even occurred in that class? Uh, intro to basic acting. Exactly, exactly. I did get an A, though, so. Yeah. Well, you, you, you did all the steps that were necessary to get the grade 
And once the final exam was turned in, the semester's over, you haven't thought of that class since then, mm -hmm. basically. And I could ask any college student in America, and they'll be able to name that one <laughs> class, and often more than, than that. Mm -hmm. All right, so, so we, we know that these gen eds are kind of, uh, <coughs> the blow-off classes exist. Uh, they're charged at the same sticker price and tuition mm. as anything else. And you have to have to go through that core curriculum in order to advance into your major and to advance to graduation. Well, the next thing that happens, we find out that uh, the core curriculum of gen eds are not stable over history. Mm. It hasn't always been. You take your one astrology, well, <laughs> no, one astronomy class. Uh, so, so I actually use it as a, as a, um, a joke in the in the book. Uh, what would happen if there was a, a mandatory astrology class? Well, I'm sure we'll, we'll get there eventually. Yeah, but. exactly. I mean, that's what, what it's heading toward. Uh, you, 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 but you take all of your your different uh, checkmark classes, mm -hmm. uh, and they aren't evenly dispersed. What we find is that certain disciplines have lobbied to increase their presence on the gen ed curriculum. Mm. And most of these are in the humanities. Uh, so like in the 1970s, the typical student took like one to two writing composition classes. Mm -hmm. <coughs> By 2000, that had basically doubled or tripled at most universities. Mm -hmm. Mandatory, you have to take them to graduate, whether you're going to be a creative writing major or not. Mm. Uh, and what this means is that the departments that teach those classes have grown in size relative to the rest of the university. So you go to almost any campus in America today, the largest department or the second largest department, it's always the English department because mm -hmm. of the mandatory gen eds that English has to teach. Well, it turns out English is also the most politicized of the disciplines, the most skewed in the leftward direction. Mm. Uh, so things start to add up here. If the gen ed curriculum is heavily skewed toward the humanities, it's mandatory, and on top of that, the humanities have moved to the left, it turns out that uh, you know maybe up to a third of your college experience is going to be in deeply politicized classes, even if you'd have no interest in politics whatsoever. You just want to get a, an engineering degree and go, uh, go build buildings. Mm -hmm. uh, you're still going to have to go through that core curriculum mm -hmm. of deeply politicized classes that are, are not only probably worse than useless to you, you don't retain <laughs> anything from mm -hmm. them, but you just sit there and get political indoctrination. Mm. Um. That actually brings me to like a sort of a chicken and an egg question. As on those gen ed requirements, I do recall from my undergrad experience before I graduated, there is a there's a student ballot ledger. I don't, I don't know what the, the term would be, but basically an initiative going around campus um, that was pushed by both students and faculty about adding a diversity requirement to the general education yeah. and also a sustainability requirement. So essentially students want exactly. courses that teach them about racism in America, climate change or what have you. And I don't really know what the fate of those uh, program initiatives were, but I do know that we did end up passing a vetting requirement for new faculty hires, which was essentially a diversity right, right. requirement. Um, so on that end, like chicken or an egg, is it because the students are radical and intimidating the faculty in the school or is, the ra is it the radical faculty imposing or brainwashing the students, whatever terms you want to use, or is it yeah. somewhere in between? Uh, so I think it's a mixture of phenomenon. There's always been a subset of the student body that is very politically active. Uh, although if you look at the survey data, students, incoming students, are much more politically diverse and politically balanced mm. than the faculty that they are being instructed by. So there are surveys of incoming freshmen, and it's a relatively stable split between there's a segment of them on the left, a segment on the right, and a segment in the middle. 
just as it looks like America, it looks like uh, the general population, and yet they're thrown into a university system where not only the faculty but the administrators are much further to the left and much more homogenous than the student body. Hmm. What what that does is it takes the subset of the student body that is politically active, and suddenly they have they're surrounded by allies on campus and people that are advocates for their cause and deprecating other viewpoints. Uh, so you have that one phenomenon. The second thing is there is a massive glut of PhD overproduction, mm. especially in the humanities and especially in the social sciences, the ones that the, the fields that have leaned to the left. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons behind this. Most of it comes because we have way too many PhD programs and not enough jobs to, uh, uh, to fill them, even though uh, hiring growth has occurred across almost all of these fields, at least into the COVID era. It was a positive growth. Mm. Uh, sometimes the biggest growth of any given years is uh, humanities uh, disciplines. And yet there are far more PhD holders that are seeking jobs than there are actually jobs available. So what's one way to alleviate that? Well, you move them into administration. Mm. Uh, you start to create a, an office of diversity that hires a person that has a history degree that can't get a regular faculty job because you know it's a glutted market, uh, but they can slightly pivot over into university administration, and next thing you know, they're uh, a bureaucrat. Mm. Uh, so that's it, it's been one of the major ways to soak up the excess of a glutted academic job market. Well, then once you get people on campus, they become an interest group onto themselves. They start pressuring and lobbying for more campus resources to be devoted to the diversity office. Mm. And what do we have a few years later? Now there's a diversity officer in some campuses that's attached to every hiring committee mm. or that is attached to a function in every major department. And what do they do? Well, that, that becomes an avenue that they apply political litmus test. Mm. It's not just uh, do you study uh, the history of race and racial discrimination, it's uh, do you approach these problems, these very real problems in society, from a perspective that aligns with critical theory, mm. that aligns with uh, uh, some of these post-colonial Marxist ideologies that are very mm. fashionable in these fields. Mm. Uh, so it becomes a mechanism to make the professoriate even more leftist because they're only hiring people for the limited number of jobs that they have that pass the litmus test of the diversity uh, bureaucracy or the environmental sustainability bureaucracy or whatever it happens to be. So mm. there's, I'm not just picking on diversity. It's dozens of different issue areas. Mm. And it definitely, it definitely presents sort of like a bootleggers and Baptist analogy in the sense you have uh, entrenched interest groups that are full-time in administration or faculty that just want to uh, boost their resources. And perhaps they care as well. They want to boost what they want to sure. do stuff that they care for. But there's also just a lot of, not a lot, but you know, the, the radical portions of the student body um, also want this, and then they pr create pressure. I remember a lot of um, one of the proposals. I, I was on uh, some of these diversity committee type uh, institutions, and there there's always calls for, oh, we want a uh, member of the Black Student Union on every hiring every faculty committee. Yeah. And in my head, and this is so, sort of sounds, and I'm sure they've all actually studied this um, in a real way. Is this sounds like you know Maoist China or the Soviet Union, where you know you need a political officer on. Uh, whatever government body there is, so it's like it seems like a lot of these tactics are coming straight out of a a certain playbook, and I guess it's not even just a certain playbook; it's just good polit political maneuvering. Well, it's, ideology has become a rationing mechanism for scarce university employment positions. Mm -hmm. 
uh, especially in the faculty ranks. Uh, we know we have a job glut. We know that uh, in some of these fields you have 50 or 100 applicants for a single position. Well, what's one way you winnow down that list uh, to, to maybe the five applicants you actually want to interview? Uh, you impose an ideological litmus test, mm. and that can be done through some of these back-channel ways. of uh, you, you couch it under a diversity statement, but what you're really doing, if someone turns in a diversity statement that pledges like a, uh, a colorblindness of society, that's actually seen as a red flag of someone mm. to put in the discard pile because it doesn't mesh with critical race theory. Mm. Uh, if, on the other hand, they are dropping jargon about intersectionality and uh, uh, oppression in a Marxian sense, and all all of the uh, the junk terms that you find out of uh, that you find in several of these uh, these critical theory aligned disciplines, uh, and there's a whole other issue here because a lot of the literature that comes out of them it's it's very uh, uh, flimsy in its academic uh, rigor, but it does mm. have uh, a, a lot of jargon that that. Um, uh, kind of cloaks that lack of rigor, mm. uh, but people that repeat those terms, they're basically sending a signal to the faculty committee and or the diversity officer that's involved in those discussions that, hey, I'm one of you politically, mm. uh, therefore advance me to the next round. I make the cut when you try to trim this uh, pile of 100 applicants down to five that you want to seriously consider. Mm. And so I want to just move into the last part of the discussion, which is given we've heard about all this, you know, you're paying... Seventy, maybe eighty thousand dollars for a degree where you were forced to essentially do a bunch of gen eds. You weren't able to specialize. Perhaps in many institutions, you all the courses that you had that you were able to take were leaned a certain way, taught you certain things about society, never really exposed you uh, to alternate viewpoints. So, do you think higher ed, given all these issues, is a bubble? Or and then I guess a caveat would be some people might theorize that the whole ESG movement. Yeah. Um, you know, like Twitter, before Elon Musk took over Twitter, there was like a whole human rights, so, like sustainability, whatever. Like there's like people at Twitter that were not doing code. They were doing like human rights advocacy right. or like racial advocacy or what have you, right? Um, every law firm, every large law firm that I've been looking at, you know, has a diversity department, right? So do you think it's a, pirate is fundamentally a bubble or do you think there's a concerning trend of just they're starting to essentially make the rest of the private sector like higher ed, and that's sort of how they prolong the, the issue. Well, I think it's it's a, an extension of the rent capture phenomenon, what we see taking place in very pronounced ways in faculty and administrative position that's hiring people based on political uh, viewpoints rather than what they're actually doing to run the place or, uh, or what they're actually able to deliver in the classroom. A lot of that has spilled over into corporate America in the mm. past uh, decade or so. Uh, part of it comes from an overproduction of degrees in really marginal fields, and I, I dare say low-rigor fields, fields mm. that don't have uh, much in the way of actual skill that they're teaching, but they're heavy in jargon and ideology. Mm. And you read some of the stuff in these, these journals, and it, it's, uh, you almost think of it as a farce, but it turns out it's, it's actually a, a, a real... Uh, argument that's been put forth there. And, and, you know, there's some great Twitter feeds that track these. Mm. They find papers in academic journals uh, that are, are like a, a literature professor uh, meditating and trying to talk to a dead cat mm. and, and interpreting this through a post-colonial critical theory framework. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's, it's utter nonsense that passes as scholarship. And there are entire fields that are, are just full of this type of things. You saw the the, the hoax journal submissions a few years ago, the so-called, mm. uh, uh, Alan So-called hoax was the original, and then there was a successor where they submitted fake papers that said all these political viewpoints in heavy jargon to journals, and they get accepted. Mm. Uh, 
that type of stuff is pervasive in higher ed, and it's created a lot of degree programs that are just a regurgitation of that. They spill into the into the private sector as well now. Mm. And what what happens is, uh, you know, it enters into a firm, and that that person arrives there instead of actually coding or delivering something to the firm that's connected to the product they provide, they become internal activists to the corporation mm. and rise in the ranks. So we've seen that with the Twitter files. So this clearly happened at Twitter. These are not coders that are being hired. They're uh, sustainability people uh, that have strong political views, and they arrive in the uh, in the corporation itself and turn their energies to trying to transform the corporate culture to reflect their political activist views, mm. uh, which I think ultimately in the long run, that does erode away at the products of value that the company is providing to the public. Mm. And so given that a lot of these universities, so do you think Elon Musk take over Twitter and sort of how he just purged out a lot of um, yeah. workers that he believed that didn't really contribute to the mission. Do you think that corporate America is due for some sort of market correction or do you, or do you think that that trend is going to be, we need to basically watch how this goes or we can't really make a decision at the moment? I mean, in some ways, we're victims of our own success. We, mm. we have a very vibrant and wealthy economy that's been extremely productive for centuries now. Uh, especially in the United States, uh, and, I, and I'd say this is true of most market economies, unprecedented levels of wealth, what that means is you can absorb a lot of slack on mm. nonsense. Mm. Uh, a typical company can be very successful and still have a lot of room internal to its its uh, structure to spend on waste. Mm. And that includes political activist waste internal to the company. Uh, so even if that activism is eroding the long-term viability of the company in the short term, uh, it's just kind of consuming up some of the uh, the extra slack of the company's success. Hmm. Um, I do think there's more of a scrutinizing eye that's being paid to it at the moment, and that comes from the fact that there uh, have been some very high-profile cases of, uh, of companies like Twitter trying to put their thumbs on the scale of elections and political issues and uh, the COVID response. Mm. Uh, and you, you know the same thing's happening at Facebook and Google and other social media companies, so it's starting to get some scrutiny because of some very high-profile incidents. Uh, yet at the same time, these are still viable companies for the most part that, uh, uh, you know, the funny thing with with Musk purging Twitter, mm. uh, in the week or so after he acquired the company, uh, there were all these doomsday predictions mm-hmm. that the platform would crash, that it wouldn't even be able to run its servers because mm-hmm. they he had gotten rid of all these uh, uh, essential and crucial employees. Well, here we are two or three months later, and, you know, Twitter's changed in some respects, which are internal policies, but the platform itself seems to be working. Mm-hmm. Uh, all these doomsday scenarios, what that tells me is that they had a lot of waste internally mm. on uh, on people that weren't really delivering anything essential to the uh, the product of the company. And I think uh, more companies are experiencing that, and uh, it is a long-term drain because when... Uh, Resources are captured for political purpose internal to the company. Uh, that ultimately means that everyone else pays a higher price for their product, or uh, uh, the subsidy that's provided internally for political activism is borne by somebody else. And usually, in most companies, that transfers onto the consumers hmm. or the shareholders. And I guess uh, wrapping up on that, seems like if the correction is coming in the marketplace and universities, especially elite universities, who charge top dollars, send their students out. And there's not going to be any more you know, like a 
racial equity officer at Twitter. You know, yeah. you know, once those once BlackRock you know stops doing ESG and you know Goldman Sachs like gets his gets his uh, act together, you're you're a university administrator. And you're looking at that. What sort of do you do you see the writing on the wall? Do you think universities sort of see it coming, or do you think they're the the motivation to really uh, adapt to a to better serve the job market isn't really there. Uh, so, so I think the bigger risk is actually the public sector uh, provision of funding that mm. the universities have. Uh, the public is sold, and this is true of every state, whether it's a red state, a blue state, or something in between. Mm. The public is sold on devoting taxpayer resources to higher education on the premise that this is delivering something of value back to society. Mm. A more educated society is a better place to live uh, in general. Uh, and then also there are particulars. We invest in our university system. We get cutting-edge technological discovery that makes our lives better. Mm-hmm. We get innovation. We get uh, new medical discoveries. We get uh, new literature, new art uh, that uh, has spillover effects in a positive way in the public. That's how it's sold to the public of why we devote billions of dollars in taxpayer resources to the university system. Mm. If it turns out that universities are primarily just engaged in radical political activism, taxpayers start asking the question, what am I getting in return for the the, the check that I'm writing the government and the government in its legislative capacity? Because hmm. our legislatures are our representatives. Uh, they have an unquestioned uh, fiscal stake in how government spends its money. Hmm. And if the taxpayers are not getting the historical return we were always promised from the university system, they tar- start thinking about turning off the spigot. And when that happens, and we're already seeing some signs of it, in, and I'd say, yeah, it is a red state thing because the university is on the far left right now. Hmm. Uh, the situation would be reversed if the universities, for whatever reason, were on the far right. So uh, I'd say the same scenario would play out. But the fact that it's skewed so far to the left means that taxpayers do have a legitimate basis in asking, are we educating society and discovering new innovations, or are we just training political activists hmm. uh, that are, uh, are are subsidizing one political party's electoral goals? Hmm. And if it's the latter, uh, you know, I, I think most people that are reasonable thinking on these subjects uh, would believe and agree that it's inappropriate to use tax dollars just to subsidize political activism. Hmm. And so what you're saying is that one day the American voter is going to wake up and they're going to tell their representatives in Congress, they're going to tell their representatives at the state level that I want less, um, you know, racial equity, climate change courses, and I want more rigorous research into discovering new things. I want more mathematics. I want more like nuclear fission or whatever, right? And they're going to essentially vote to cut off a lot of that federal funding. And that once that's done, you're going to basically see a scramble on, in higher ed to really uh, recalibrate itself to adjust to that new market. Yeah, and it, and it may be in ways that are very unpleasant in the short run. Mm. I think we're already seeing some of that at the state level. Uh, there are, are red states that are asking questions about what are we producing through our, our public university systems. Maybe we need to turn off the spigot, cut down uh, the resources that we are allocating to them. And that makes tough decisions and necessity for administrators. Uh, One is they could just stay the course and plow straight ahead and keep producing political activism, or maybe it will cause some introspection at the university level uh, to say maybe as public institutions, we do need to be more responsive to what our taxpayers want. And having swung so far to the left means that uh, there's something of a correction not to go to the right, not to do the opposite direction, but to just get back to a relatively balanced university system like the one we had 20 or 30 years 
years ago. Mm. Well, thank you, Phil, for that very, uh, I don't know if it's optimistic is the right word, but certainly a very clarifying, <laughs> yeah, a very clarifying perspective on what may be ahead. And I hope the fallout is not as intense as we might, that we might think it is. Uh, but thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely.